taken from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Jesus accused by his family and by teachers of the law. It can be found on page 1015 in the church Bible. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he is driving out. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, he is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the Gospel of Christ. Thank you for that. Now then. I said I'd come nearer. There we are. I meant to say earlier to several of you who know us, asked after Jill because she's not with me this morning. The answer to that question is she's busy in church. Uh, we, these days we're well involved in Holy Trinity Church in Huddersfield, uh, where Steve was cured, which is why we know him. And uh, when we first went to Holy Trinity, we felt we'd come home church wise. We never really felt at home since we left here but we feel at home again now. It's a great church. Not perfect, but great church. Lively, growing, full of all-age people, all sorts of stuff going on. And it's a great place to be. And I tease Jill sometimes that some weeks she has more church meetings than I do. Hey! <laughs> but there we are. So let's pray. Father God, as we come to engage with your word and the truth we find in it. We pray that your Holy Spirit will come, teach us, 
challenge us, move us, encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been given a title and a passage. You know that. There it is. I guess you'll be familiar with the often quoted saying, you can choose your friends, but you're lumbered with your family. Some of you may well be only too aware of the reality behind that saying, but family life can, for some at times, be difficult. And most of us will have struggled from time to time within our family unit with differences of personality, differences of opinion, differences of taste and lifestyle, disagreements over certain issues, and so on. Usually, where the family unit is basically united, strong, and happy, these differences are not a problem. They can be sorted. But where the underlying unity and strength is lacking, things can be more difficult, even resulting in fallout. And all that, all that is true of the human family is also true of the spiritual family, that family that was initiated as a result of the life and ministry of Jesus, which is our focus today. But what does it mean in practice? Let me just try this experiment with you. Turn to the person on your left. If you're against the wall, I'll leave you to decide what you're going to do about that. <laughs> or nobody, nobody aside you. Now, whether or not you know that person, whether or not you like that person, if they're a follower of Jesus, they are family, and so are you. Turn to the person on your right. Same implies you're against the wall or got nobody there. Whether or not you know that person, whether or not you like that person, if they are a follower of Jesus, they are family. And so are you. We are God's family. But even in God's family, of course, there will at times be differences struggles, divisions. The New Testament is full of them. We'll find there times when people fell out with each other, had major differences of opinion and disagreements. Paul spent a lot of time trying to sort them out, tell them to behave themselves and live together in love and peace. But before we go any further... Let's see what we can learn from the passage Steve has given us for this morning from Mark chapter 3. Not the easiest of, pa of passages. Thank you, Steve. And the real tough bits I'm not going to touch on. Except to say this. It does refer in the middle bit to the unforgivable sin. And just occasionally you find people come getting terribly worried that they might have committed it. Let me say this much. If you are worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, it's quite clear to me you haven't. Because if you had, you wouldn't be worried. End of that comment. That's all I was going to say about that bit. But, if, but let me just uh, offer you a little technical academic background to this gospel. Humour me. 
I'm interested in this stuff, you might not be. You can turn off the next two or three minutes if you want to, as long as you come back again. Okay, here we go. You're probably well aware that the gospel writers were in effect editors. They all had basically the same material to work with, the life and ministry of Jesus as remembered by the Christian communities. And from that, they each chose what to include in their particular version of the life of Jesus, what order to put those things in, and what location to give them. For example, you'll be familiar that Luke and Matthew choose to include different parts of the Christmas story. Mark and John include nothing. The familiar teaching we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 is located, surprise, surprise, on a mountainside. The same material, in Luke's rather different version, is located on a level place. And did you know there's only one of Jesus' miracles that appears in all four Gospels? And do you know which one it is? You don't? Do I have to tell you? Feed you the 5,000. It's the only miracle of Jesus that's in all four Gospels. And even that, that account is not the same in all of them. I mean, John, for example, includes a, a lab with his pickup, his pack-up, who brings it forward. None of the other Gospel writers uh, include that. Now, Mark, in writing his version of the Jesus story, which we're reading from this morning, uses a, te a technique unique to him. None of the others use it. The posh word for it, here we go, is intercalation. Oh, well, you can tell what I have for breakfast, can you? But it's usually referred to as Mark's sandwich technique. Now, that's easy to understand, isn't it? Why? Well, he starts a story, he interrupts it with another one, and then goes back to the first one. And there are several of them in Mark's Gospel. The best-known one, probably, which you're, I guess, familiar with, is Jairus' daughter. If you know that story, Jesus is asked to go to Jairus' house to heal the daughter. On the way, a woman comes to the crowd and touches Jesus to get healing. And Jesus stops, deals with her, talks to her, heals her. Then the story about Jairus carries on. A typical sandwich technique in action. And this morning's passage, here we go, we're back to the passage, is another example. For the first couple of verses, you have Jesus' family coming to him. Then that seems to be interrupted with the legal people coming to Jesus. And then we go back to the family come again. Sandwich. If you like, the family in the story 
is the bread, and the lawyers are the filling. That's why the scholars refer to Mark's sandwich technique. So having got the technical stuff out of the way, you can come back now if you've got switched off. If you, if you think about this passage, it isn't easy, I confess. These two groups of people who came to Jesus with very different agenda actually had a very basic thing in common. They both misunderstood what Jesus was really about, what he was trying to do. To the Jewish lawyers, he was a threat because his teaching, as far as they were concerned, wasn't orthodox. He was doing things and saying things which were not in their religious books. As a result, they accused him of being in league with the devil, which was, of course, utterly ridiculous, as Jesus kindly pointed out to them with his laser-sharp comment parable. If either a kingdom or a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. What you're accusing me of is nonsense. His family's concern was rather different. They were concerned about his health. The fact that he was so busy, he hadn't eaten properly. They were even worried he might not be entirely sane. He's mad. How many parents have said that to their children at times? There we are. They wanted to take him home and look after him. Unfortunately for them, they turned up at just the wrong time. They'd come into a situation where Jesus was committed to creating a new family. No longer dependent on biological relationship, but now on spiritual relationship with Jesus. People who do God's will, the last verse of our reading said. So what, what about this new family that Jesus was in the process of creating? What is it like? What are its characteristics? And how as well does the family of God here at Christ Church South Osset match up to the model that Jesus offers us? First, I note, it is an open family. That is, anyone but anyone can be part of it which was, of course, very different from any kind of family the Jewish people leaders might have tried to put together, for I'm sure they would have wanted all kinds of serious vetting of any would-be joiners before they could even be, come through the door. Jesus, on the other hand, was always welcoming people that others didn't include in their social circles. Tax directors and sinners beggars and lepers, women and children. And he upset the local religious leadership in so doing. One seaside parish I've come across recently has taken this seriously and declares their commitment to an, every, to, to an everyone welcome policy in this challenging statement. This challenging statement. It's there somewhere. We tried it out beforehand.
try double to do double to crypt it. There we are. There it is. That'll do. This they displayed somewhere in their church says this. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married or divorced, widowed, gay, confused, filthy rich, comfortable or dirt poor. We extend a special welcome to wailing babies and exciting toddlers, excited toddlers. We welcome you whether you can sing like Pavarotti or just growl quietly to yourself. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woken up, or just got out of prison. We don't care if you're more Christian than the Archbishop of Canterbury, or haven't been to church since Christmas ten years ago. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet, to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome keep fit mums, football dads, Starving artists, tree huggers, latter sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or still addicted. We welcome if you're having problems or down in the dumps or don't like organised religion. We're not keen on it either. We offer a welcome to those who think the earth is flat, work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or are here because Granny is visiting and wanted to come to church. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, both, or neither. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down their throat as kids, or got lost on the promenade and ended up here by mistake. We welcome pilgrims, tourists, seekers, doubters, you. When it comes to communion or Mass, or Eucharist, or breaking of bread, you are welcome there as well. After all, it is the Lord's Supper, and all are welcome to eat and drink at his feast of bread and wine. Now, I don't know what you make of that, but when I first read it, my immediate response was, now there's a church Jesus would love to be part of there's a family where Jesus would be totally comfortable. So what is welcome? Thanks, Russ. An archdeacon friend of mine, now retired, was visiting one of the churches in his patch. and noticed at one side a table with 12 chairs around it and learned that it was where they had coffee after the service. All well and good. He had, of course, returned to the church some time later and noticed there was now a second table with four chairs around it alongside the other one. Asking the reason for it, he was somewhat amazed at the answer. A new family has joined us. That's their table. My friends, that is not welcome to the family. How do you make sure people are made feel welcome in our church can be part of our family? It will involve opening up our activities, our groups, 
and most importantly, and sometimes the most uncomfortable, our friendship cliques. That is, the groups of people we naturally relate to and major on. And welcoming others in. Do you always sit with the same people at coffee after church? What about this morning inviting someone you don't know to join you and sit with them? Welcome is a crucial aspect of being God's family in today's society. A society which has created many lonely people, many of whom are simply wanting to belong. As the family of God, we can offer that welcome. We have to want it. We have to make it happen. And we have to be prepared for the cost we may experience in so doing. All this is well expressed in the well-known song from the musical Oliver. Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself one of the family. We've taken to you so strong. It's clear we're going to get along. Well, I'm not going to sing it. Once a person is beginning to feel at home, to feel one of the family, they'll be all the more ready to stay around and become an active member of the family. We have a brilliant example of this at the end of Acts 2, where we read of the first Christian community which came together following the day of Pentecost. And we can learn a lot from them about being the family of God. Here is a new group of Christians discovering what it means to be that family of God we saw Jesus creating in our reading today. The first thing I note is we're told they were devoted. And that's a very strong word in the, in the original Greek. This embryonic Christian community meant business. They were totally committed to the task. In these days, when there are so many other demands on our time, our energy, our commitment, it might be revealing to us from time to time how committed we are to the life and growth of the church, to playing our part in God's family, making him known through that family, to the wider community. We're told they were devoted to fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia, which speaks of community, sharing and intimacy. And this couldn't have been easy for them. If you think about it, probably at the heart of that community were the remains of the 12 disciples, who we're told were a motley group who often didn't see eye to eye, and what's more, probably, some of the crowd that had been in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, we're told, came from 15 different ethnic groups. That's in Acts 2, verses 9 to 11. Any of you ever been asked to read the lesson on Pentecost Sunday, there are those words you have to struggle over to get them right, the Phrygians and the, all those sort of people, you know. There were 15 different groups. And now they're all part of the same family. 
I guess there was plenty of opportunity for personality clashes, differences of opinion, even fierce disagreements. But somehow, out of that mixed bag of human personalities, they managed to create community, a family, which was not only united, but wonderfully attractive and drew others in. And then there was learning together. They were keen to understand more about the faith they'd come to embrace. In fact, they needed to if they were going to have any chance to respond to that oft-quoted commission of Jesus to go and make disciples, end of Matthew's Gospel. Remember, disciples are students, learners. Learners need teachers. And teachers need to know their stuff to teach others. If we're going to have any chance of making new disciples for our family, we have to know what we're talking about. We have to be committed to learning ourselves so we can teach others who want to learn. Teachers need to be learners. I am teaching things these days that I didn't used to know because I'm still learning. We can all do that to some extent. And they were committed to teaching the faith. In my last parish, I developed a simple saying, a sort of mantra, that people said it would be on my gravestone. It simply said, know your stuff. Because over the years, I've been concerned how poor understanding of the Christian faith is even amongst folk who are regularly in our churches. They dutifully come, Sunday by Sunday, saying, we believe, but if you scratch the surface, the level of understanding in many places, not here, of course, but in many places, is not good. So welcome Steve's brilliant teaching ministry. I know he goes on a bit at times, I've got a T-shirt already. But listen, he is a wonderful teacher. Learn all you can from him. It's important. We know us more and more in these days. When out there, there's so, so much alternative stuff being taught, peddled in all kinds of ways. We need to know our stuff in the Christian family. I'm convinced the more we commit ourselves to knowing our faith, the more ready we will be to tell others when opportunity comes. Confidence in our faith issues in a willingness to share it. I actually first learned that principle here, all those many years ago when I was here for the first time round. When I was here back in the 80s, I've been here just a few months, Beginning to discern the needs of this faithful worshiper community, which is, what I, which is what I inherited, I offered a Christian basics course. Some people are still around, I think, who came on it. I've seen nodding heads. Of course, this is long before the days of these wonderful courses that are around today, like, like Alpha and Start and Emmaus. I had to write my own. Six sessions. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Church, Bible, prayer. And they came. 
I see you nodding your heads again. I mean, that just thrilled me. Clearly, here were people hungry to learn. And it's when they came and started learning, they started getting involved, which I would say was the beginning of the growth here. As people began to learn, be more confident in their faith, and so get involved more. And as soon as that happens, growth happens. As we, those of you who have been around, were here that 10 years will know, that happened. That was a start. Simply beginning to come to terms of our faith and learning. God's family ought to be doing that often, regularly. When people are more confident in what they believe and why they believe it, then they're more able and willing to be involved, to share their faith with others. In a very real sense, the family of God is also a class of learners. We're also told they were devoted to prayer. You know the other saying that's often said in Christian circles, the family that prays together stays together? I know nothing about the prayer life at Christchurch these days, but any encouragement you, Steve or others give you to pray, take it! We, ha we have a prayer meeting at Holy Trinity, it's now going to be monthly. Well, it was slightly less than that, but it's going to be monthly. But we call it the engine room. That's what it's called. The engine room. That's your prayer meeting, but it's the engine room. That's where the power happens. And I think it's quite an important principle. I think it's a great name for a prayer meeting. The engine room. We come together to get fired up. Because the family that prays together stays together. Prayer is important in the family of God. Take every opportunity to pray together. Of course, say your own personal prayers. But prayer, prayer, prayer is a power for the family of God to be healthy. You would have gathered, I find this early post-Pentecost Christian community fascinating and challenging as they worked out what it meant to be the family of God. And they were able to create an attractive environment which the wider community were drawn to. It's as if they were saying, there's something good going on over there. Let's go and find out what's happening. Wouldn't that be great if people said that of this church? Something good going on over there. I wonder what it is. Let's go and find out. What, the way Luke puts it, right at the end of chapter 2 of Acts, is like this. The Christian community, the family of God, there in those early days, were enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Isn't that brilliant? But it takes first for the family of God to be so vibrant and alive that people notice and come. It's, all, it's one thing to um, have a good sort of mission program, but what's important is what we bring them to. I think uh, 
Well, I know, as I've been involved over the years, there are some churches that hesitate to contemplate bringing new Christian friends to their church. They're not quite sure how they're going to find it. The quality of life of the family of God in the local church is a desperately fundamental, important aspect of being an effective mission of church. Crucial. Central. Please, God, can we have more of that in our churches today? Particularly at Christchurch South Osset. If you're at all interested, I have said more than I've been able to say this morning in a book what I've written, which even as we meet here this morning is being typeset, ready for publication later this year. So look out for it. You have been warned. It'll be in the bookshops, on Kindle, and everywhere else you care to buy books sometime later this year. You'll hear about it eventually. So uh, some of this stuff has come out of that, and there's more. The book, is, the book is called, I think, the title I've given it, I think they haven't said they want to change it, Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. At risk of another sermon. You see, we live in a very strange land, which we, I don't think many of us have noticed. Um, I start in the book in the Old Testament exile. Now, there was a strange land for God's people. In exile, in the 6th century BC, they lost everything. They lost their country, they lost their worship place, they lost their land. All gone. And they were devastated. And Psalm 137 captures that devastation, particularly in verse 4, which is where the title of the book comes from. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But what I show is, or try to show, Although that was a devastating experience, there were some within that community who said, come on, chaps, let's not just sit in our hands and moan and groan until it's all over. They actually said, now, let's take this as an opportunity to think through our faith. What it all means. What, what, the, what the covenant means that we've busted by the way we've behaved. Let's revisit it. Let's re-engage with God. And what's more, of course, they had to find a new way of worship, didn't they? Because the temple was gone. So they started working in little local groups for worship, which came to be known as synagogue. Probably the beginning of the Jewish pattern of worship, which is still part of their worship today. All that came out of a devastating experience of finding themselves in a strange land. What we need to, if you wonder why they call it a strange land, there was a funny belief around in those days, you know, uh, about each, each local god uh, needed to be having a territory where he was god, where he was worshipped. If you know the story of the helium Naaman in the Old Testament, there's a slightly odd, enigmatic ending to it. Naaman, the Syrian, goes to Elisha to be healed, gets healed, and he's so thrilled. He says, now look, your god has healed me, I want to worship him. So let's have some of your earth to take back with me. He couldn't understand how he could worship Israel's God anywhere else other than the land of Israel. 
they understood God to have a territory. And he only worked there. That was, that's what was behind the people in exile saying, how on earth can we sing the Lord's, Lord's song here? Because they're not there. And that's what they had to learn. They could do that. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on, aren't I? You want, you, want you not yet? No, we're working. Um, but then from there I go on to talk about our strange land. What is that? Well, rather than being one event, it's several events which we probably hardly realise has created a strange land in our country. It's all happened in the last 60 years or so. It began with postmodernism, when all the, all the normal ways of seeing things and accepting things got thrown up in the air and questioned. Why should I any longer believe what you think is right is right? Why should I think what you think is truth is true? So they developed what is often called a pick-and-mix society. I take what I want from the shelf, and I leave the rest. Postmodernism contributed to this, this nation and others becoming much more secular in its flavour, which we're still struggling with today. That's where it all started. Second part of our strange land is, is post-Christendom. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, Christendom started in the year 312 AD. Did you know that? Because that's when the emperor became a Christian. Up to that point, Christians had been terribly persecuted. And then from at that point, the emperor made it the established religion of the empire. Guess what the church was called today? The established church? Hmm. And it goes back to their Christendom. What it meant was, everybody was assumed to be Christians. In fact, they, had, they, they were supposed to be in the Roman Empire. And they were supposed to be baptised. And there were p- penalties if you didn't comply with that. So if you've got everybody reckoned to be Christian, all you have to do is look after them. Gradually it dawned on, on us that actually it wasn't enough. And particularly when, uh, with postmodernism hitting the place, we, we, some, we just began to realise that we're still struggling with it. We've got to change gear here. No longer are people not automatically making themselves to be Christians. We've got to make some new ones. The phrase that's often used is, we used to be a pastoral church looking after people, We've now got to be a missional church creating new people, new disciples. The phrase that's often used and is well known in church circles is from maintenance to mission. The church looks after what they've got or does new stuff. And the church we're part of has been good at maintenance in the main, has been used to maintenance. That's that's, that's relatively straightforward. And we're creaking it in every possible joint we've got to make this shift from pastoral to missional. But that's because we're now in post-Christendom. The third bit of our strange land is what I've called post-gospel. Now, I first came across that here through our then Suffolk Bishop, John Finney, who subsequently put in his book, and I've had his permission to use it in mine. He, get, he does this thing of four generations. I shared it with you last time I was here, actually, four generations. Those who were here, you've probably forgotten. Generation one, parents and children both went to church, so they both had some understanding of gospel. Generation two, 
Parents have stopped going to church, but the children still go. But because the, ch- the, uh, the parents went as children, both still have some understanding of gospel. Generation three, neither parents or children go to church, but the parents went as children, they have some understanding of gospel. Generation four, neither parents or children go to church, neither have an understanding of the gospel. And John, because I was able to hear him do this live, would say, and that's the generation we are in. We live in a country where the knowledge of our faith is minimal out on the street. We think people, sort of surely they know, that they, surely they know the, the basic stories. Well, I, thought, I had a personal example of that just recently. I'm trying to be a good boy and do my own bit of evangelism if I can. Right opposite you know, the side window of our house, there was a footpath. It goes to the local school and to some other, other beautiful little bit of land with a, with a view. But along that footpath, on a Tuesday and Thursday morning, comes a young man to empty the bin. Because it happened to be opposite our kitchen sink, uh, window and kitchen sink, we started waving to each other. And then I went out to him and began to talk to him. And just a few weeks ago, he said to me, what have you been up to recently? So that's me, what'd you get? I said, well, I've been writing a book, I said. What about, he said. Well, uh, all the kind of the stuff that's in the Bible and I've included some of the stories in the Bible. Let me tell you one of them, I said. So I told him the story of the prodigal son. Probably the best-known story of Je- that Jesus told. And then I said to him, have you ever heard that before? No, he said. I was up against the very principle I'm talking about. Out there, the knowledge of our faith is minimal. And we have a challenge to address that. Postmodern, post-Christendom, post-Gospel, and the whole thing, of course, clobbered then by COVID. When we went into exile, didn't we? We lost everything familiar, including our place of worship. Where have you heard of that principle before? But I think the challenge is, what are we doing about it? Some churches, sadly, simply look forward to the time they could be back and just get on with business as usual. I think they've missed a trick. Some churches have been much more creative. They've discovered, actually, we can do things differently. And now we're coming out of COVID, hopefully. And apparently it's gone up 50% again, is it? Anyway, that's another issue. Um, now we're coming out of COVID. Churches are more on the board saying, we've learned things while we're in COVID, which we need to bring with us out of exile, like they did in the Old Testament. New ways of doing things, new ways of thinking. Post-COVID. So that's our strange land. Post-modern, post-Christendom, post-Gospel, and COVID. Our strange land. And it's all happened in the last 60 years. And a lot of us haven't noticed it. But it's happened sort of subtly. And we're beginning to be aware of it. Our nation's changed. It's not how those of us who are old enough to remember the 60s. That's when it all started. Swinging 60s and all that. Oh, that was all part of it. The next section, well, I thought I'd better talk about the song we have to sing. In other words, our gospel. And I've chosen just six aspects of the gospel to say, look, this is the song we have to sing. It's a wonderful song. We ought to be singing it loud and clear and often. 
I start with Psalm 23 because it's the one bit of the Bible often people do have some vague understanding of. And then the prodigal son. And then the fact that so much of what Jesus said and did addresses people with, with health issues, particularly mental health issues and self-worth issues. And then I deal with the fact we have, we have a God who loves, which is permanent and always there for us, which we can just embrace. My favourite quote, and I've probably said this before when I've come in classes, is a, is a Philip Yancey quote out of the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, which goes like this. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Hey. Yes. The fifth section is Grace. And the last bit, I do that six, I could do a little bit more, is about restoration, the fact that God doesn't just forgive us, he totally restores us, like he did Peter. I mean, you think about the Peter story, it's amazing. One moment he's denying he knew Jesus, and a few weeks later he's on the streets of Jerusalem and said, believe in him, repentize, repent. I mean, what a transformation. That's because Jesus offers us to restore us totally. And the last long section is where the bits of this morning come from. Because the church needs to be involved in singing the song in our generation. Um, one, of the, one of the phrases that has haunted me recently, is a, it's, it's a funny one to haunt me, because it's a bit of Anglican liturgy. And it's, it's a bit of Anglican liturgy you only hear when, when a clergy are ordained or when ministers are put into post by the bishop. If you've ever been to one of those services, you may have come to Steve and, uh, and his uh, licensing. The bishop says, before they swear at him, um, something called the preface to the declarations. And there's a phrase in there which, go, which says, talks about the faith which has been revealed in the scriptures. And then it says this, this faith we're called upon to proclaim afresh in each generation. And that's a bit like a clarion call to me. That's what we're not doing. That's what we're not doing. It's the core task of the Church of England, the core task of our clergy in the Church of England, and we're not doing it. I personally believe it's one of the major reasons for the decline in church attendance. We're not doing our stuff. And our stuff is to proclaim the faith in our generation, which means in terms people can relate to today. Which means... I'm not treading on people's toes here, probably not quoting King James, King James English to them. Or not too often singing wonderful hymns with phrases in consubstantial, co-eternal, while unending ages run. All right, then? Whatever grabs you. Um, and that's a challenge which we haven't really got sorted. Uh, so there are six aspects. So in the last, last longer part, I talk about the, the way the church, and I refer to the Acts 2 passage, because it's been, it's been so challenging to me, the end of Acts 2, we, we looked at a bit this morning. We need to be a church that is, in every possible way, in word and action, singing a long song in our strange land. That's our task. And there is nothing more important if we don't do it, nobody else can. And it won't get done.
All right? You've had a second sermon now. I mean, it's just terrible. Really. You, came, you, came, you complain about long sermons here, I know. Well, you've had two this morning. <laughs> Buy the book when it comes out. I've no idea what it'll cost. But, uh, yes, it'll be out. And you'll hear about it. We'll hear about it. Okay? Where's Ted to send <laughs> Let's stand. So let's in this moment just try and uh, dare to ask God, what is he that all that stuff? He wants you to hear. He wants you to respond to. He wants you to take on board. Personally. And maybe there's also stuff out of all the, all the words I've spoken, far too many, that uh, is for the community, the family here. Other things we need to hear as a family of God in South Osset, we need to take on board, respond to. Let's dare to ask God to reveal to us his particular word for this particular situation in this particular time. Come, Holy Spirit. Meet with your people. Speak your word to lives and hearts and minds. A word that challenges, a word that changes, the word that moves, a word that renews. Come, Holy Spirit, to your people, we pray. And make us, in a very real way, your family for these days in this place. In the name of Jesus. I think we're going to sing, are we not? <laughs>